0: Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the court. My name is Michael Keneally and I represent Amazon in this action. I'd like to reserve three minutes for rebuttal, if I may. The district court committed two errors in denying Amazon's motion to compel arbitration, and each independently justifies reversal. First, the court erred in holding that Amazon failed to prove that plaintiff had notice of the existence and contents of the 2019 terms of service. Amazon's declaration stated unequivocally that Amazon sent the 2019 terms of service to plaintiff via email on October 3rd, 2019. And that's a direct quote. Plaintiff has never disputed the truth of that claim. He's never.
1: It's your burden to show that you gave him notice, though, right? Yes, Your Honor. So wouldn't it be um, possible that you could have that statement that you sent him the email? Um, With the updated terms, but the email might have said in the subject line, pizza coupon.
0: Well, I don't think that it's it's possible that that happened, but I don't think it would matter in this case because of his uncontested obligation under the prior contract from 2016 to keep track of his uh, emails from Amazon. And to stay informed of updates. But to, what if it
1: said pizza coupon, and he's allergic to cheese, and he can't eat pizza? He has—you're saying he has the obligation to notice that that email is from Amazon and read and open it at that point?
0: I think under the terms of the 2016 agreement, he does have that obligation, and he has the obligation to stay informed of the terms that are accessible in the app itself when he goes and uh, perform signs up to perform a new delivery. Um, so, in that
1: Do we have any case, though, that says that um, you can have this ongoing obligation that would require him basically to check the terms every hour, every day? I don't know how often to see whether there have been an update.
0: Well, it's not every hour and every day. It's only when he goes to schedule deliveries. Uh, and that's notice that he had uh, under the 2016 agreement that if he does perform deliveries after a new terms of service goes into effect, then he is accepting those terms of service.
2: I understand it, and I may not. Um, he, you, you can send him a notice of a modification, and if he doesn't check and continues to work for you, then he has accepted whatever that was.
0: I think that's fair, Your Honor. You don't have
2: to give any, a, a, any kind of reasonable opportunity for him to, uh, or, or some kind of notice, hey, there's in his email that there's a, a, a modification coming.
0: Well, I, I do think that something. I think he does have a reasonable opportunity uh, because he's given us that email account. He's consented to us communicating uh, with him through that email account, and uh, the terms of service are accessible within the app itself. Um, that that's in our declaration, at paragraph seven. Um, so he knows that when he goes to sign up for uh, a new delivery block, if he is on comfortable with whatever the terms of service might be at the time that he should check within the app or within his email to see if there have been any updates
2: so he doesn't have to assent specifically to that modification or be given the opportunity to stop he he uh he or reject it he can if he just ignores it then he's stuck
0: well if he does nothing further he's not stuck he has to actually use he the has to click th-
2: the box as i understand. Well, yeah that. that's what it,
0: well, he did have to click the box initially, uh, and he doesn't dispute that he did so in 2016. But, and, you
3: know, and, but I, I just want to – I'm sorry. Go ahead and answer, and then I have another question.
0: But, but was there
2: next, another box where he says – There I was not another I box guess. in
0: 2019, but he did have to click that he wanted to perform deliveries in 2020, which, which he did.
2: My question w-
3: was a follow-on to Judge uh, Friedland's, and that is, is there any evidence I, – I didn't see anybody – I may be missing something. Is there any evidence as to what the subject line was for the 2019 Terms of Service?
0: The subject line of the email is not in the record, Your Honor. Yeah. Uh, to go back to your question, Judge Freeland, about cases that are on point, uh, we did cite cases both in the district court and on appeal that are from district courts uh, that I think are on point here. The Gibbs versus Stinson case was another case where Uh, A defendant was arguing that there were new terms of service that they emailed out to the plaintiffs in that case, uh, and the plaintiff said, well, we can't can't know that those were accepted because the emails sending out those terms aren't in the record. But the district court in that case said, merely contesting the sufficiency of the defendant's evidence when they say that they sent the emails, if you haven't denied that you got the email, or that you assented to the new terms, that's not enough to defeat uh, the notice, of, uh, to, to make a notice objection. And I think that's consistent with California law as well. The Sprunk versus Prisma case is, is a court of appeal decision from California where uh, the court there said similarly. You can't just uh, de- uh, contest the sufficiency of the evidence if at face value it shows what the defendant needed to show as a prima facie burden you have to actually at least deny that that evidence is accurate.
1: But you're basically asking us to adopt that for the first time at the appellate level, right? We don't have a federal appeals court case that has already said that, at least from our circuit and maybe any. Is that right?
0: As far as I can recall, there is um, the Schnabel versus Trilegiant case from the Second Circuit, uh, which arose in a different context. It was a consumer uh, purchase, I think, uh, decision, It may have been an employment decision, I don't remember. But in any event, there wasn't a pre-existing contractual obligation to stay informed of updates. And the Second Circuit there distinguished that and said that may be relevant to what a reasonable user uh, could be expected to have notice of. Um, So I don't know that there's a Court of Appeals decision from the Federal Circuits, but as I say, the California Court of Appeal decision uh, is out there already, the Spunk case. And um, I think both sides agree that this is an issue um, that the court can look to California law to resolve.
2: Can I ask you a question about our appellate jurisdiction? Sure. What is the basis for our appellate jurisdiction?
0: So uh, as, our, as our briefing notes, there are actually two separate statutes um, for, that provide appellate jurisdiction here. And uh, the first that I'll mention today is 28 U.S.C. 1292A. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this court held... Uh, in uh, the Aloha Airlines case, that that statute provides jurisdiction over orders denying a motion to compel arbitration. And plaintiff doesn't dispute that this court has already held that. He just says that you shouldn't follow that case. Right.
2: Well, my but that was, if I understand it, that was before um, the uh, Gulfstream decision by the Supreme Court. And I, I may have this wrong, but my understanding is that. That um, there are about uh, there are a number of circuits that have held um, since Gulfstream that orders denying stays or motions to compel arbitration are not appealable under 1292A.
0: There is a circuit split on that, Your Honor. Um, already
2: a circuit split, or there
0: is. The Fourth Circuit has held uh, consistent with this court's prior decision in Aloha Airlines uh, that uh, 1292 continues to provide jurisdiction in these circumstances, uh, and. Um, and I would just note that the Gulfstream decision from the Supreme Court uh, got rid of what was called the Enloe-Edelson Doctrine, um, which is different from what this court was relying on in Aloha Airlines. The court there distinguished Enlo edelson which really goes to uh, stays of litigation rather than uh, motions to compel arbitration. Uh, and it, had, it relied on the distinction between law and equity, and the Supreme Court got rid of that in Gulfstream. Um, but this court wasn't relying on that. And I would just note that this court has since— um, both the adoption of Section 16 in the FAA and Gulfstream relied on 1292 um, to sustain jurisdiction in these circumstances. And I note um, the Brazil versus Victim Services case from 2017. It's uh, 878 F3759, where jurisdiction was asserted under 1292 and Section 16. Uh, the second. Um, Sorry,
2: what, what was that case? And
0: what, uh, it was Brazil B-R-E-A-Z-E-A-L-E versus Victim Services. Um, and that's from 2017.
2: And the site is 878, Fed 3rd?
0: 759.
2: And that's which circuit? This circuit. This circuit? Yes, Your Honor. Okay.
0: Um, but, so I think 1292 is, is, is a straightforward way of resolving the federal jurisdiction issue. We also note that Section 16 of the FAA provides jurisdiction. Um, the statute there says that orders denying arbitration under the FAA are appealable on the face of the order here that's what this district court decision did.
1: So can I ask you about this though? It's it's um it dep- that argument depends on your motion to compel arbitration having been brought under the FAA. And it doesn't seem like this motion was because you argued under state law that the state contract required arbitration.
0: Well, the district court did find that our motion was pursuant to the Federal Arbitration Act or Delaware law? That's at ER But are we bound
1: by that characterization? It seems like a legal question, not a factual question. It seems like on the face of it, your motion was about state law, so the district court could say it was anything, but I don't know why that would bind us.
0: Well, I think that just with a question of issue preservation, Normally, the Court of Appeals gives some weight to the district court's interpretation of the party's pleadings. But even if it weren't binding, on the first page of our motion to compel arbitration, we asserted that the FAA continued to govern, even though this court had held otherwise in the Rittman case. And uh, I think that that's enough. Well, aren't uh, we
2: bound by the written case?
0: Well, I, actually, it's, it's right now that uh, there are a lot of cases that are. Uh, addressing whether the Supreme Court's recent decision in Southwest Airlines versus Saxon changes the standard here. That's not presented in this appeal, and we would urge the Court not to address that question because the FAA's applicability um, on the substance of the appeal is academic here, either under the FAA or under state law, we need to show that there's an arbitration uh, agreement between the parties and that it applies in these circumstances. And so it doesn't matter whether the FAA or the uh, California Arbitration Act applies for the substance of our appeal. To go back to your question, Judge Friedland, I think um, one of the cases that plaintiff cites on uh, the FAA is Sherwood versus Marquette Transportation from the Seventh Circuit. And there, uh, the way that they formulated, like how much does a party need to invoke the FAA in order to trigger jurisdiction, uh, the court there said that if the parties disagree about the scope of the Federal Arbitration Act's coverage, the motion seeking a stay is one under Section 3 of the FAA. And it's clear, at least, that the parties disagreed here over the FAA uh, applying to this contract. Uh, and Amazon preserved its rights to challenge that uh, if there were further developments under um uh, the Supreme Court or Ninth Circuit law, which we think there has been, but that's not an issue before this court. Um, I, I see that my clock's running down. Unless the court has further questions on jurisdiction, I'd like to pivot to the um, second issue on appeal, the scope of the arbitration clause, because uh, it's common ground between the parties that the 2016 Terms of Service is binding here. It also has an arbitration clause, and the question is whether it covers uh, the dispute in this case. Uh, we think it does because it's written to capture any dispute that relates in any way to plaintiff's Amazon Flex work. Uh, The phrases it uses are performance of services or participation in the program. Uh, And I think that if you look at the complaint from start to finish, there are many allegations showing that this dispute is tied to plaintiff's participation in the Amazon Flex program. If he weren't an Amazon Flex participant, we wouldn't be here. He wouldn't have been in the Facebook groups, and Amazon would have had no interest in his activity on Facebook. Say
1: that... UPS also has flex drivers, and they were also in the chat room. Couldn't this same claim have been brought by a UPS driver? Uh,
0: Not as framed in the complaint, Your Honor, because it's integral to his claim that the groups are limited to Amazon flex drivers. And that's how he goes to show that Amazon wasn't supposed to be there. He says that in his brief on appeal, and he cites paragraph 16 of the complaint. Um,
1: Why isn't that just sort of a coincidence to the tort theory? Because I mean, it's essentially like a surveillance privacy claim, which – could exist if there were also UPS and FedEx flex drivers in the same chat, Amazon might still want to know what they're talking about. Um, I'm just not sure why it matters. I mean, it happens that he says this was all Amazon people, but I don't, it's not like really part of the theory. I think it is
0: part of the theory, Your Honor, because each of his claims depends on a lack of consent Uh, to Amazons being allegedly in the groups. And the way that he alleges that is by saying the groups are closed off to anyone who's not an Amazon Flex driver. That's paragraph 16 uh, that he cites for that proposition of his complaint. And so if Amazon, if those groups were open to more of an Amazon Flex driver's, Um, then he wouldn't have that same argument that Amazon wasn't supposed to be there.
1: Well, what if he just said it was only open to delivery flex drivers?
0: Well, it would be a different complaint at a minimum, Your Honor. Uh, But he also, I think, and I think this explains why the class definition here incorporates flex drivers into – I'm sorry, the the Rule 23 proposed class is limited under paragraph 30 of the complaint to flex drivers in the United States. And I think this is why, because – the, the participation in the program is key to um, the uh, lack of the alleged lack of authority for uh, Amazon to be in the Facebook groups, um, and I think another thing I'd point out on this, Your Honor, is that on page 50 of plaintiff's brief, um, I think he concedes that participation in the program is ambiguous. He says it could either apply to. Official aspects of the program, uh, or it can apply to unofficial aspects of the program, like communicating with coworkers about the program. And so I think if that's true, we should win because of the presumption of arbitrability. A long line of California cases say that if the arbitration clause can be construed as uh, susceptible to a construction that applies to this dispute, well, then that dispute is required, that interpretation is, re- is required. And I think he's come pretty close to conceding that. How do you that.
1: distinguish this from the Howard v. Goldblum case, where the um, stock at issue was came from employment, and there was an employment contract, but the ownership of the stock didn't relate to the employment?
0: Two, two distinctions with that case, Your Honor. Uh, the first is that the California Court of Appeal uh, emphasized that there was a separation agreement, uh, whereby uh, – or maybe it was called a release – whereby all of the employment-related disputes were put behind the party, and that helped the court conclude that the dispute before it in that case was not an employment-related dispute. And secondly, the clause there is actually narrower than our clause here um, it, because here we have very broad language saying arising out of or relating in any way to the agreement. Yeah,
1: I, sorry, go ahead. Because I, I, there it's also arising out of and relating to.
0: Yeah, but I think it's the thing that comes um, – after that phrase your honor and i can't remember what exactly it is in howard but here we have three different things the agreement participation in uh the program or performance of services and i think those two second ca- the second and third categories have to mean something else besides um what would be in the howard case where there was an employment relationship employment there are two separate categories and we think here uh that given the nature of the facebook groups which on their face so just you the- think
1: that the, that the um this was related to his performance of the deliveries
0: that this dispute is related to his performance of services, yes, Your Honour, because those are part of the discussion, um, according to the complaint, that is ta- that takes place within the Facebook groups.
2: Right. So I take it if if he if he got hit by a UPS er, by a an Amazon delivery car that um, that would be outside of this, but that's about it.
0: Well, I don't know if that's about it, but I, I think yes. If he were just walking down the street yeah. one day, I think that would be outside this. I think there are other possibilities as well, um, I, but I, but I think that this one, given the fact that these groups are centered around the Amazon Flex program, uh, is 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 uh, is covered within the agreement.
1: Thank you. We'll still give you some time for a rebuttal, but let's hear from. Thank you. Side. I
0: appreciate it, Your Honor.
4: Can you all hear me okay? All right. Thank you. Good morning, Your Honors. Max Roberts for plaintiff.
1: Hold on one second, though. You are tall, and we need to make sure that this gets on the live stream, so um, let's just pause for a second. Do we need to adjust the microphone, do you think? Okay.
4: Okay. (laughs) I've heard that one before. Um, Good morning, Your Honors. Max Roberts for plaintiff appellee. Ricky Jackson. Your Honors, while the District Court was correct to deny Amazon's motion to compel arbitration, this Court need not reach the merits of this decision because there's no jurisdiction to hear it. As Mr. Keenley just said, Amazon cites two bases for jurisdiction, 9 U.S.C. Section 16 and 28 U.S.C. Section 1292. And neither decision provides for, or neither statute provides for jurisdiction.
3: What about Aloha Airlines? Where are we with that case?
4: Sure, Your Honor. So Mr. Jackson's position is that Aloha Airlines is no longer good law in light of the enactment of Section 16. So previously, there was some uncertainty as to whether the denial of a motion to compel arbitration was appealable under Section 1292. And in 1983, the Aloha Airlines Court held that it was.
3: It was and 19, I thought it was 1985, but. Am I wrong? It's right around there. Maybe, yeah. It, it was the before
4: wrong. the enact—in any event, Your Honor, it was before the enactment of uh, Section 16 in 1988. And as the Tenth Circuit has recognized in the In-Re Universal case, uh, Section 16's enactment abdicates 1292 as a basis for appellate jurisdiction over denials of motions to compel arbitration. And the reasoning for that is, as nine circuit courts have held— If a denial for a motion to compel arbitration was appealable, it would allow for a whole host of other decisions to suddenly become appealable just because a litigant had to expend certain monies to prosecute a case.
1: So so I can understand if we were a circuit that had said there was no jurisdiction under um, 1292, why maybe this argument would make more sense. But I'm having trouble understanding why, given that we said it is appealable, a statute that comes in and also says things are appealable undermines the idea that the thing is appealable.
4: <laughs> so, Your Honor, two points on that. First, the Tenth Circuit in In-Re Universal also had previously held that 1292 was a basis for jurisdiction, but after the enactment of Section 16, it advocated that prior reasoning. And two is that if 1292 was still a basis for appellate jurisdiction uh, for denials of motions to compel arbitration, it would render Section 16 superfluous. So. It would just mean that there's two statutes that govern appellate.
1: Circuit split. So it's only superfluous in our circuit, maybe in the fourth or something. I mean, it's not superfluous everywhere, right?
4: That would be correct, Your Honor, but uh, Mr. Jackson would maintain that the correct reading is what the nine circuits have held. And it
1: would not
3: be superfluous if we were to conclude that this is not appealable under uh, Section 16.
4: That's well, so on that point, Your Honor, as you were sitting on the panel that decided the Kuntat case, and in that case, uh, the Ninth Circuit held that state law is not a grounds for an appeal of a motion, of a denial for a motion to compel arbitration. The FAA's policy cannot expand so far as to cover state law uh, arbitration. I, I,
3: right, but my point being, it, it's not superfluous if there is no ability to appeal under under uh, Section 16, but there is under 1292. So I don't understand for that reason why it would be considered superfluous. This might, in fact, be the perfect example of when it's not.
4: So respectfully, Your Honor, I think the problem with that argument is that the reasons why a denial of mo- for a motion to compel arbitration, that is a mouthful to say, under state law uh, would be appealable, apply equally to federal law. So if the reasoning is, well, a denial of a motion under state law is equivalent to the denial of injunctive relief, that would apply equally to federal law. And yet that would put us right back in the predicament that I'm talking about, which is that a motion to compel arbitration uh, or or the denial of a motion to compel arbitration just means expending litigation expenditures. And that cannot be the basis for uh, appeal because it would render something like an ordinary motion to stay appeal. But
1: Aloha said, right, we have... Our Miller v. Gammy rule that we can't defy what a prior panel said unless something has changed, and it's hard to see how a statute that said the same thing changed it.
4: Your Honor, I think we would just rest on the briefing uh, on that issue. Um, Talk about.
1: uh, Could you uh,
3: turn to the scope of the uh, uh, arbitration agreement, and uh, because it is a remarkably, I'm looking at the 2016 terms of service. And that is a remarkably broad arbitration clause that, that deals with any dispute or claim, whether based on contract, common law, or statute arising out of, or relating in any way to a h- list of things, including your participation or your performance of services.
4: Sure, Your Honor. It, it is certainly a broad arbitration clause, but the wor- use of the word relating to does not make it infinite. Um, as Justice Friedland was pointing out earlier, these claims are just a mere coincidence that, you know, the, the plaintiffs are flex drivers, they're talking about work. These claims would exist regardless of whether Mr. Jackson was in a group of old dog lovers, if he was just talking about dogs. Even if there was another third party, the issue of consent doesn't depend on whether, you know, he's
3: Well, a- but, but he's— that- <laughs> If, if the claim relates in any way to his participation in the program, that uh, dog walking isn't relating to his participation in the program. So I don't see why that hypothetical is, is even relevant because they're not talking about dog walking. They're not talking about their favorite, you know, uh, football teams. They're talking about things that pertain, at least in part, to work and to their participation in the program.
4: Because, Your Honor, the what Mr. Jackson is speaking about is not what the claims turn on. The acts that are aggrieved of here is that Mr. Jackson was posting on a private Facebook group in his private time, off work, and Amazon surveilled on that group without consent. Those are the facts that give rise to the claim, not the substance of the communications. Now, this case might be different if, for instance, this was an Amazon-sanctioned social event where all Amazon Flex drivers were there, and Amazon happened to be spying on the workers at this work-sanctioned social event, or if they were communicating via the Amazon Flex app. But that's not the facts that we have here. And so I would refer this court to uh, the decision Welch versus My Left Foot Children's Therapy, 871-F3D-791-9th Circuit 2017, which is a decision that actually Justice Schroeder sat on is um, that is
3: that in in your briefing
4: no your honor would you would
3: you uh, submit a 28j with that citation please y- yes your honor absolutely That's, thank you
4: but so what that decision holds your honors is that just because you have an, a clause that says relates to employment that doesn't mean that you arbitrate claims that wouldn't exist but for your employment and so in that case you had a false claims act and what the employer was trying to argue was the employee wouldn't have this information but for her employment, and what this court held was she would still have the claim regardless, because the aggrieved of conduct is not her employment, it's the fact that the company is submitting fraudulent Medicare bills, and that decision followed decisions by the Fifth Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit and was subsequently followed by the Second Circuit. What,
3: what was the nature of the clause, though? The, uh, how broad was the clause in that case?
4: Your Honor, I would have to double-check, but I believe it was arising out of or relating to employment. And, what they, and, and notably, there was another clause that was even broader that this Court held uh, didn't apply for differing reasons, but it was any dispute that you have with your employer or your employer has with you. That is an infinitely broader clause, and that's not the kind of clause that we have here. We don't have a dispute that says any claim that Mr. Jackson must have against Amazon it must be arbitrary. That's not, that's not the clause that we have here. Um, but in those 5th and 11th Circuit cases that followed, there was a sexual assault that occurred on off-hours, but on employment property. And the courts there held those clauses, those clauses didn't cover the dispute because this employee would have the claim, regardless of whether the fact that she was an employer employee, regardless of who the assaultant was. It just so happened that it occurred on property. And so, as Justice Friedland pointed out, it's just a coincidence. The facts of this case do not... The claims in this case don't turn on what Mr. Jackson is talking about, and they don't turn on the fact that that the group is populated with Amazon flex drivers. Again, he'd have the claim regardless of who he was and what he was talking about. Um,
1: Can I ask you about why you didn't file a declaration saying you didn't get the email?
4: Absolutely, Your Honor. I was just about to turn to that issue. So, as this Court noted... In the stover case it is amazon's burden to demonstrate each and every element of a contract including mutual assent and if and only if amazon meets that burden is mr jackson required to submit notice and they did not meet that burden and they didn't meet that burden for several reasons first because the email simply says that it sent or the declaration says that it was sent an email to mr jackson it doesn't say that Mr. Jackson was provided notice, and notably, it doesn't let us know what the email actually looked like. And that wasn't Mr. Jackson's burden to submit the email; it was Amazon's burden in the first instance to say, "Hey, this is what we actually sent to you. This provided notice to you." And then, if they did that, Mr. Jackson would have to say, "Oh, well, you know, the the, the terms and conditions are not highlighted, or they're not in blue, or, or all those types of arguments." And that's an, that's not only in accord with this court's prior decisions, like in the new in case. Um, talking about browser app, that's in accord with what Amazon did in that declaration for 2016. Because if you look at the 2016 declaration, uh, or the 2016 terms of service uh, on page 168 of the record. Oops, wait for you to turn there.
1: <laughs> I um, fast.
4: <laughs> so if you look at that declaration, Amazon said, this is what the screen looked like when Mr. Jackson came to the app. This is the button that he would have clicked on. This is how the button appeared. So Amazon knows how to meet its burden of notice.
1: But but it, it once you have entered a contract that says that there can be updates and ter- describes ways that you agree to the updates, could it be a lower level of notice that's required? I mean, it, just because they realized they had to show we entered a contract at all, I'm not sure that means that the updates are exactly the same?
4: No, Your Honor, for at least two reasons. The first is that in that very contract in Section 13, Amazon says that we may modify the contract by providing notice to you. So if Mr. Jackson doesn't have notice, he has no duty to read. And second, that's in accord with case law from the circuit. So, for instance, the Douglas case uh, from that the circuit decided back in 2007. So if if this court held that, yes, if you have notice, you have a duty to read the contract. But if notice has been never provided to you, you don't have that same duty. And so if Is
1: it a matter of contract interpretation here? What notice means, though? Like, do we? It's it's the 2016 contract that says if you you know we'll give you notice, and so we have to understand what they meant by notice.
4: Yeah. Your Honor, me, you, can you rephrase the question? I'm not. So totally I'm just wondering
1: if like general cases about when there's sufficient notice are relevant or whether what we have to think about is what did this contract what did the parties mean in this contract when they agreed to this notice of updates
4: clause your honor so what the contract seems to say is that we may provide notice to you through the app or by other means and and i think one of those means would be email but it doesn't mean that simply sending out an email or you know posting a terms and conditions to the app provides notice that would be governed by the case law And so this court would need to evaluate whether the email was designed in a certain way or had the right subject matter or pointed Mr. Jackson's attention to the updated terms of service. And there's a big difference between what Your Honor pointed out earlier, which is free pizza coupons for Amazon Flex drivers and somewhere buried in there there's a hyperlink that contains the updated terms of service and an email that says, updated terms of service, please see attached. And we don't know what the email says because Amazon didn't submit it as it was but, like, Amazon's you burden. You probably
1: do know because he's your client and they say they sent it, and usually emails that are sent are received. So why haven't they sort of shifted the burden by saying we sent it to him, and then he can explain why he didn't notice it because the subject line was weird or something like that?
4: Your Honor, because we've disputed, well, first of all, we've disputed that he received it, but secondly, because... Well, have you,
1: though? This is what I'm asking. I don't see any evidentiary submitted that evidentiary submission, like no declaration saying I never received this. I don't think I've seen that. Is there something like that?
4: Your Honor, we argue it in the briefing that Mr. Jackson did well, not. Well, you say
1: he didn't get notice in the briefing, I think, but that begs the question of what notice is. Like, have you ever said he didn't even get the email?
4: Yes, Your Honor, that is said in the briefing. We say that he did that's, not.
1: That's not helpful if it's not in the record as
3: evidence, as sworn evidence. It's not a matter for legal argument. He either received it or he didn't but that's a fact
1: but i'm also not even sure it's true (laughs) because i think you said they haven't shown he got the email but have you said in your brief he didn't get the email because if you did i don't remember where
4: we might have said your honor that they didn't show that he got the email but that would be amazon's burden in the first instance to demonstrate But that's
1: a different question so have you ever said presented anything that he didn't get the email
4: no, your honor however it would be amazon's burden in the first instance so to show. If,
3: if there if the things that they did show lead to a natural inference that it was received then why doesn't the burden then shift to your client it's sort of like we mailed it and here you know we we put it in the mail with postage prepaid and we dropped it in the mailbox at, you know, the headquarters of the post office in San Jose, then it, 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 the other person then has to come in and say, I didn't receive it. And why isn't it just like that?
4: Your Honor, if the facts led to the natural conclusion that, that Amazon might have provided Mr. Jackson notice, then, yes, the burden would shift to us. But Amazon hasn't gotten that far. You
2: know what the notice said?
4: No, Your Honor, and that's exactly the problem. Is if we don't know what the notice said and the way that it notified Mr. Jackson, it cannot be said that Amazon met uh, his burden. Um, and just just two quick points, Your Honor. I see, my time is almost up. Is that okay?
1: Yes, please go ahead. Okay.
4: So Amazon cites to uh, the the Gibbs case, but the issue in the Gibbs case was that the plaintiff had already consented in large part to the fact that this particular terms applied, and the declaration said that he received it. Amazon also cites to so the Sprunk case, but the distinguishing fact in the Sprunk case is they put into the record a signed agreement by the plaintiff. The only issue was whether the declaration said either you're, you know everybody in the class signed either this agreement or this other agreement. Here's the signed version that your client signed, later we introduced this other one, and everyone else signed that. That's sufficient, but you can see there, and in every single case that Amazon cites other than Gibbs, the defendant is putting into the record the actual email. And as the Stark case held, that email, what that said provides a world of difference because it was just burying the lead, and there's nothing that could be said that Mr. Jackson had noticed. Simply sending the email is not enough. And that's also what the, the Schnabel case held uh, is that, sim- that in the Second Circuit, that simply sending an email is not enough. You have to do something more. And whether that's putting something in the declaration to say that Mr. Jackson had noticed or actually submitting the email to show that Mr. Jackson had noticed, that's how you meet your burden. And because Amazon did not do that here, the district court was correct to conclude that the 2016 terms applied. Um, unless your honors have further questions, thank you for your time.
1: Thank you very much. Let's do two minutes for rebuttal.
0: Thank you, Your Honor. appreciate the rebuttal time. Uh, on the scope of the agreement issue, um, I did go back and look at Howard versus Goldblum in there. The distinguishing factor uh, is that the arbitration clause said relating to your employment um, that was why the court concluded that the uh, securities law breach of fiduciary duties issues were not related to the employment here the language is different because it re- relate the it extends to disputes relating in any way to performance of services or participation in the program, and we do think this qualifies. I think it's notable that the title of the Facebook groups themselves refer to the Amazon Flex program, uh, and that's uh, alleged in the complaint at paragraph uh, 20. Uh, If this were a case about you know, uh, accessing Facebook groups that talked about flex drivers dog walking. I think Amazon would have a much harder case on the merits as well as a much harder case to compel arbitration. Well, the whole
3: gravamen of the complaint is that the, the purpose of the spying, I'll use that term, is to determine potential unionizing activity, which Amazon doesn't wants to discourage. And it's all about, you know, terms and conditions of employment.
0: It's certainly about the, the, the work of the Amazon Flex drivers, it's not about their dog walking or anything else. Uh, on, on the question of, uh, of notice, um, I, I, the cases that uh, plaintiff is principally relying on, cases like Nguyen, uh, Douglas, those are cases where there's not a pre-existing contractual agreement that specifies how the agreement may be updated uh, and what sort of notice suffices. I do think it's a question contract contract interpretation Judge Friedland and I think here the contract in section 15 of the 2016 contract that is says that Amazon will make the terms of service available within the app and so I think that's why it's uh, important here that the declaration not only talks about the email but also talks about the terms being accessible within the app and if plaintiff were uh, unable or to discern what the uh, email Uh, was communicating about the 2016 Terms of Service or didn't receive the email, they could have said so. And and their briefing does not actually say they didn't receive it. It just says that we didn't show that they received it.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, both sides, for the very helpful arguments in this difficult case. This case is submitted.